Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem. To you, my name is Kathy Kaler. Thank you so much for joining me for this Dischem Medical Monday. I hope that you'll stay with me for the next hour as uh, we talk about health issues. And uh, let me tell you what's coming up. I'm going to be talking about, you know, one needs to just look around Johannesburg and these beautiful, beautiful trees that uh, have got all these autumn colors. Many of them have already lost their leaves. So we're already getting towards winter. We're looking at the temperatures. Uh, just today, I think it's uh, going to be a high of 22. But at night, it's definitely much chillier. And one starts thinking about uh, winter. It happens every year, yes. <laughs> so we can be a little bit more proactive in terms of our health. Um, you know, coming up, going to be talking about dry skin. I don't know about you, but, uh, and this isn't something that used to really affect me in my younger years, but certainly the last 10 years, winter, I feel it, and I cannot be without hand cream at any time. Uh, just, uh, I just uh, go through these tubes at a ridiculous rate. So uh, talking about, you know, dry skin, how to prevent it, and also some dry skin conditions can actually be part of a much greater um, health issue. So going to be speaking to Dr. Ishad Mohammed Esak. He's a dermatologist. Uh, he's a regular here on the Diske Medical Monday, and it's always a pleasure to speak to him. So looking very, very forward to that. Before that, though, I thought, you know, lots of people this time of the year sore throats and runny eyes and stuffy nose if not a runny nose and I thought well everybody just calls it the flu right oh I've got flu I've got flu and I thought do do we really have the flu what is the difference between having the flu between having a, a common cold and sinusitis how do you know when it's something that needs to be treated so I went and I did some research for you. I'm no expert, but uh, I can tell you this, that the flu can actually be life-threatening. Did you know that? And uh, it's very important to recognize the, the symptoms early, especially with children, senior citizens, and pregnant women. It's caused by the influenza virus. It's contagious. It affects the respiratory system. So uh, that sore throat, that you know, that stuffy nose that becomes a sore throat, your post-nasal drip, and the next thing you've got a cough and you've got a tight chest. That could very well be um, flu. It could also be bronchitis. But, uh, yeah, severe symptoms and complications can apparently lead to death. Before I scare the living daylights out of you, um, the one telltale sign of the flu is how quickly and how intense the symptoms pre present themselves. Within a matter of hours, a person can have chills, become seriously fatigued, that's very, very tired, with muscle aches and develop a sore throat and runny nose. Some patients will suffer from a headache with diarrhea and or vomiting. And um, go and see your, your physician, go and see your doctor, your GP immediately uh, if you have the flu. Because, uh, And I know a lot of GPs like to give um, antibiotics. You shouldn't really take an antibiotic for the flu, only if there's going to be a second a sec chances of a secondary infection, like a bronchitis. Um, a common cold, 
is very, very similar, only it takes much longer for the cold to begin. So flu is very, very fast uh, acting on the system. And uh, a cold takes much longer. It can take actually a few days. So, uh, But it will also be much, much milder. So, uh, yeah, rather than ours. Also, with the sneezing and a stuffy nose and a sore throat, and the, those are the most obvious symptoms. Then you've got sinus infections. The sinus infection, that's inflammation and infection of the sinus cavities, usually caused by a cold or allergies. It's characterized by pain and pressure around the eyes, yes, if you've ever woken up with sinusitis. If you've had sinusitis, you'll know all about it. Your whole face becomes sore. It's like having a headache on your face. Um, very, very unpleasant, and that can take a long time to uh, to get sorted out. So uh, those are just a few things. Before uh, we start talking about dry skin, I also want to tell you about something that's happened in my life that has been absolutely life-changing. Um, I was asked, I was actually invited to go as a... You know, as a guest of an organization called the DR Link, um, they were submitting, they, they had a team of uh, a large number of people who were running the Jerusalem Marathon. And they asked me to come along as, as an observer and as a guest. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not somebody who's an observer. I like to participate. And I said uh, to Michelle Goodman from the DR Link, I said, if I'm coming, I'm running. And I signed up to do the 10-kilometer run. This was seven weeks before the Jerusalem Marathon. Now, understand <laughs> the proportion of this. I am not, I am a, a, the only crunches I like are those of the Lay's plain salted chips, right? Those are the crunches I know and I'm familiar with. I was a couch potato. And uh, I do have a treadmill. But I couldn't even finish 20 minutes walking on the treadmill. And I thought, I need some help. So one, I got a trainer, a wonderful guy by the name of Samson. He's a, he's a Kenyan, he's an athlete, and 5 o'clock every morning we were on that road. Um, the other thing that I did was I downloaded an app, which I want to tell you about. It's called Couch Potato to 10 Kilometers. And the most useful thing about that app is that it changed how I thought about distance and how I thought about exercise and how I thought about running. It's never, if you had said to me, walk one kilometer or two kilometers, I would have told you you were mad. But here's what the app does. It's a, it's a, it's a training program. And uh, this is how it goes. So your first week, you walk briskly for five minutes. Okay? Not distance. You walk briskly for five minutes. Then you alternate running and walking for 30 seconds. And you do that for 20 minutes, and that's the end. And the next day you do the same, and the next day you do the same. Week two, you walk briskly for five minutes, and then you alternate running and walking for 60 seconds, and you do that for 20 minutes. And so it builds up, and it builds up your fitness levels. And your last workout is run for one hour, and that is 10 kilometers. And that was absolutely a game changer for me. I completed the uh, the 10-kilometer Jerusalem Marathon, and uh, I've actually kept up the exercise. And now what I find is that uh, because of the what, – what nobody tells you is the mental impact of exercise 
and the and the uh, the benefits of what it does to you mentally. If I get angry or if I get frustrated, and I'm somebody who's very very impatient, and I I don't suffer fools easily. Please believe me. But when I feel frustrated, I get onto that treadmill and I just run and I get off and everything's fine and all is well with the world again. It is the most incredible, incredible tool. And I think that if more people did exercise, I think psychologists would be out of a job. I do. And that was actually said to me by a psychologist last week when we were talking about it. Anyway, I just wanted to pass on some of that information, the app if you're interested. If you are thinking about getting active, you do it at your own pace. Uh, I had a marathon to prepare for, so I took a 14-week program and I condensed it into seven weeks. But um, go and check it out. It's called Couch Potato to 10 Kilometers. This is the Discam Medical Monday. My name is Kathy Kayla. Thank you so much for joining me. If you've got any tips, if you if you want to just say hi, if you want to... You know, speak to my guest. I'm going to be introducing him in a minute. Then this is how you get in touch. 34519. That's the text line. You can also WhatsApp for free on 061-895-1019. And you can use that on Telegram as well if you have Telegram. So uh, get in touch. Say hi. And uh, we're going to be talking about dry skin. I'd like to welcome my guest, Dr. Irshad Mohammed Isak. He is a dermatologist and uh, he's no stranger to Chayefim, he's certainly no stranger to this show. Welcome, Dr. Isak. How are you? Thank you very much for having me again, Cathy. It's so I'm lovely well, to have I'm you. Well. Can't complain. I can see you, you're very active. Um, Not. <laughs> we try to be. But would you agree? But don't quote ex- me on that. Ex- <laughs> exercise definitely has, I mean, nobody tells you about the, the benefits. It's, uh, you, never mind the, the weight loss and all of that, but the mental, Benefits is incredible. I think what people forget is that when you exercise, not only do you exercise, and most people would exercise um, after having been either cautioned f- regarding some sort of cardiovascular disease or or diabetes, for example. What people don't realize is that when you're exercising, your blood flow to all the organs actually improves, and that'll include the brain. And that's exactly the reason why you say that pe- pe- uh, people tend to be a lot clearer in their thought. Uh, they call their cognitive function better. improves yeah. as well, and if and again because maybe I'm biased, you'll find that your blood flow to the to the skin also improves. So you have um, much better healing times. Wound healing becomes a lot better as well. Your complexion and your complexion yeah. improves. Um, you have that so-called glow um, on your skin as well. So certainly, from a healing point of view and from a skin function point of view, the better you you. Um, provide blood flow to the skin, certainly the skin would be in a, in a far better condition. Well, the overall. biggest organ in the body, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. The skin is the biggest organ in the body. So uh, if we look after that, you know, that's half the job done, Absolutely. I suppose. <laughs> All right, we're talking about, you know, winter. Winter's right on our doorstep. I'm sure as you were driving here, you mm. saw the trees, and they've all gone those beautiful colors. Some of them have already lost their leaves. And, uh, you know, it happens every year, and kind of we become reactionary. But we can be proactive in terms of preparing our homes and preparing ourselves and prote- preparing our bodies for winter. Because a winter, it's also a time of growth, or where you're preparing for growth. So we're talking about dry skin, and you may think, ah, well, you know, dry skin, 
But there's a lot to dry skin. It's not just a matter of just slapping on some aqueous cream or whatever it is that you use. So uh, take us through it, the different causes for dry skin, because it's not always weather-related, is it? I think I think it's important to understand that your skin, one of its primary functions is a, is, is a barrier function. It's a protective function. It is there to protect you against the elements. And obviously the the temperature or the cold and the wind are going to be two elements that your, that your skin is designed to protect you against. So taking care of your skin and, like you say, not only preparing for winter but making sure that your skin is protected throughout, be it summer or winter, is very, very important. Um, if you look at dry skin in, in general, there are different risk factors and different people will respond differently to their dry skin. You will get those who would completely ignore it, um, comfortable because they may find either technical difficulty or just discomfort in the application of a moisturizer or an emollient. Some of them find them sticky. Some of them find them with a poor cosmetic odor. They would choose not to use it. And then you find those who would have relatively mild um, dry skin, and they would be really perturbed by it, prompting them to moisturize their skin specifically or, or most importantly after a bath or a shower. So taking care of your skin and, and addressing dry skin or, in fact, preventing it goes a long way in the overall health of your skin. A lot of people believe that if I shower more frequently or take longer baths, um, I'll be able to hydrate my skin. You must remember that our skins are not designed to simply imbibe water through osmosis through it. If that was the case, if you were sitting in a, in a, in a bubble bath, after 20 minutes, you'd look like the Oros or the Michelin Man, <laughs> and your bubble bath would be completely soaked. We don't function like a, like, like a sponge. Right. So the more you shower or the more you bath, contrary to most people's thinking, is actually um, drives or contributes to dry skin. Because the more you rub the skin or the more you rub the body, you're actually removing the outer layers of the skin. Remember in previous conversations we discussed that the epidermis has got five layers. Yes. And the more you, 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 you scrub or rub or abrade or erode the skin, you are thinning out those layers. And that aids a concept called trans-epidermal water loss. Trans meaning across, epidermal meaning across the outer layer of the skin or the epidermis, water loss. That water is actually being lost from the second layer of the skin, which is the dermis. That's the layer of the skin that results in your skin looking firm and plump, and you don't have the tissue paper appearance of the skin as when your skin becomes dehydrated. Hold on. Can I? Okay. Finish your thought, and then I've got a question for you because mm. this is, yeah, I've got, some, I've got some sirens going on, going off in my head. Okay. okay. So, so essentially, you are losing water from the second layer of the skin. On the other hand, drinking or ingesting water, that essentially contributes to the vascular compartment of the skin. In other words, the vessels and the bloodstream. Very little water actually gets from the bloodstream into the dermis. So by drinking water, anything in excess, you're basically going to pee it out. Whereas the skin requires to be hydrated from the outside in. Yes, there is a contribution from the vascular system, but not as great as if you were to allow water to get in from the outside to the inside. We could call this show Mythbusters with Disco Medical Monday because you've just, what, what you're telling me is that 
drinking lots of water has got very, very little to do with how your skin appears, which goes against what I've always been told, is that, you know, you look dehydrated, you should drink more water. In you fact, know, get rid of wrinkles. If you look at, for example, you were talking about the Jerus- Jerusalem mar- Marathon. Yeah. Um, there is a concept called water, water intoxication. And water intoxication is, uh, in, the, in the ordinary setup, you would not believe that you could intoxicate yourself on plain water. Right. But when water is available, for example, in large quantities in patients who are, who are exerting themselves, in a marathon setup, comrades, Berlin Marathon, Boston Marathon, you can end up in a situation where you are taking in so much of water that you can actually intoxicate yourself on water. So that water doesn't move immediately from the vascular compartment into the dermal compartment. There is a contribution from that, but that's not the only way your skin can hydrate itself. And remember that I said earlier that your skin's not designed to just take in water from the outside to the inside. Right. And the question that comes about is, well, how do we get get the water into the second layer of the skin? The trick here is to have that water bound to something else that would be absorbed. So in the case of emollients or in case of moisturizers, let's just categorize that um, simply. You can have two categories of moisturizers. You have those that are the occlusives that block the skin and you get those that are the humectants that actually take water with it. If you look at the occlusives group, their function and their job is to stop or to prevent transepidermal water loss. Right. So you need to have water in the dermis first in order to prevent it from being lost. So it basically seals the skin. That's Exactly. And an example of that would be petroleum jelly. Gives a nice gloss and shine to the skin, appears as if the skin is moisturized, and what it does is it actually provides an impermeable layer on top of the skin to prevent water from being lost. Which is why it's great for nappy rash and all sorts of things like that. Because it works great as a, ba- as a barrier cream. Right. Whereas a humectant is designed to bind to water, and as the humectant gets absorbed, it takes water with it. For example, if you were to look at an at a chemical formulation like cetamacrogol or urea, for example, urea can bind up to a hundred times its weight in water. Okay, can we just talk about urea? <laughs> Why? Why? I mean, urea comes from where? It comes from horses, right? No, urea is well. Majority of the cosmetics that actually have urea in them are, are synthesized, but urea is one of the 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 byproducts or waste. That, that functions, that, that flows in the, in the bloodstream as a, a waste product. So it has the ability or it has an affinity for water and it can bind to water. And, uh, urea is used specifically for that purpose, but obviously those that are used in cosmetics uh, are synthesized in, in a laboratory. So urea is actually widely available in the body itself. Now all you're doing in, in a humectant is that you're allowing the urea to bind with the water and as the urea gets absorbed, it carries the water into the skin. That's one example of how um, humectants will, will essentially work. So if you look at moisturizers, you've got to ask yourself, do I need to put water in or do I need to prevent water from getting out? In winter, probably and both. In, and, in, and in winter, you're probably going to head your bet more towards the humectants where you need to put water in. Because you must remember that dry skin would naturally drive itch. Itch would drive scratch. Scratch would then drive histamine release. And histamine release then 
gives you a greater sensation of itch, which makes you scratch, which makes you re- release more histamine. So you end up in this itch-scratch cycle. And it is important that, for example, dry skin is one of the precursors or one of the risk factors for the development of eczemas. And I'm losing eczemas as a, as a, a, as a blanket group. Most of all eczemas are compounded by dry skin. Right. And in winter, you'll find a lot of patients may not even present themselves, may not even have a problem with their skin. But as the dryness sets in, the eczema slowly begins to flare up. And that drives inflammation. So you're then beginning to, to use not only moisturizers, but you need to give them antihistamines to, drop, to, 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 to reduce the, the, the histamine effect. And you also need to start using for them, in some cases, cortisones or other prescription items in order to alleviate the eczema. But the dry skin in the majority of cases is, is the fundamental problem that triggers off the, this entire um, vicious circle of events. I'm Kathy Kaler. My guest is Dr. Irshad Mohammed Esak. He's a dermatologist. We're talking about skin and preparing our, our bodies for winter, which is right on our doorstep. If you'd like to get in touch, this is how you do it. You can send us an SMS, a text on 34519. If you like, you can sign your name. Those texts are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also send us a message for free on WhatsApp or Telegram, and that number is 061-895-1019. Got a question from one of our listeners, unsigned, saying, any solutions for hyperhidrosis? What is hyperhidrosis? Hyperhidrosis, if we had to break the term down, hyper meaning excess Mm -hmm. or greater, hydrosis meaning sweating. You get different types of hyperhidrosis. You get those that are, if you were to divide them, you'd get those that are localized, and you get those that are generalized. The localized type essentially would involve, for example, only the palms or only the underarms or only the soles of the skin. So it's local areas of the body. In the generalized type of hyperhidrosis, you end up getting sweating, that excess sweating that occurs throughout the body. If you were to look at causes of hyperhidrosis, um, in the majority of cases, you would find uh, idiopathic or unknown types of hyperhidrosis as a result of um, excess sweat production in those particular glands. In those sweat glands. But there are certain types of hyperhidrosis that are associated with underlying medical problems. For example, hyperthyroidism, excess functioning of the thyroid gland and release of thyroid hormone into the bloodstream can result in hyperhidrosis. Certain types of diabetics can get hyperhidrosis. There is a type of tumor that can occur from the adrenal gland uh, called a phachromocytoma. Phachromocytomas intermittently will release adrenaline and no adrenaline into the bloodstream. As you know, in a fight-or-flight situation, you have adrenaline released directly into the bloodstream, and that adrenaline results in excess sweat production. So imagine that happening on an intermittent basis without being in a fight-or-flight. can drive you crazy. So you just tend to sweat. Yeah. Then you get those who would sweat uh, called gustatory hyperhidrosis as a result of... um, of, um, uh, spicy foods, they end up with, in, in the normal setup, if you were to eat a bird's eye chili or uh, capsicum, you will find that you would sweat a little bit more. That's, that's a physiological and a normal response. But some patients tend to sweat profusely, profusely as a result of that particular type of trigger. And would they do it for much longer than, yes, it, than it would be and normal? And it, and it becomes, one of the, 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 the considerations for calling something hyperhidrosis is that it must, must 
affect or interfere with social and occupational functioning. So, for example, you find these patients sometimes with hyperhidrosis have to walk around with with a pack of tissues all the time, or even a, for in some cases it can be so severe that uh, a face cloth, constantly drying their hands, because they can't even put their hands onto a piece of paper. It's difficult for a student to write an exam. If they're using flow markers, it tends to smudge. Yeah. Um, they they find it socially difficult to to put their hand out just to greet someone. It be, it, it can become yes. as debilitating as that. So when it gets to that sort of situation, um, a lot of patients would e- essentially seek uh, assistance for it. Very interesting. Um, I actually heard they were using Botox. Botox, Botox injections. Bo- Botox ha- ha- has long been used for hyperhidrosis. Into the sweat glands to in, stop it. Into the affected areas. Sounds very painful. Um, Sorry. <laughs> it really does. It does have its pros and cons, but yeah. when a patient begins to decide or resign to the fact that I want injections to sort my problem out, they usually are being troubled excessively, and it's, it is a serious cause of anxiety for these patients. So they would opt to go for regular Botox injections. Um, the way it works is that the botulinum toxin actually blocks the acetylcholine receptors that triggers the sweat gland into, into the production of sweat. So you're actually using an, an, a nerve blockade from triggering the, the, the sweat glands. Remember that sweat can, the sweat gland can produce sweat as a result of two different triggers. One is heat, a, a chemical trigger, uh. so for example, adrenaline and noradrenaline, and then you have an electrical trigger or a neurological trigger, which is the nervous system. So you're actually blocking the, the nervous system trigger from allowing the sweat gland to produce ex- excess sweat. And that's where the, fun- that's where the, the rationale behind the use of, um, of botulinum toxin actually comes in. Absolutely fascinating. We were talking earlier about the two different levels. You've got the epidermis, and then underneath you've got the dermis, right? So epidermis is what we see, and the dermis is underneath. And what happens is that the skin grows, right? It grows from the dermis and eventually becomes the epidermis. Um, and you were saying that the it's the moisture content in the dermis that's going to that we need to protect. So what about something like exfoliation? We're told to exfoliate our faces. We're told that at least once a week you need to get a salt scrub or you need to get something to exfoliate your body. What's your thought on that? I mean, it, it sounded counterintuitive. If, you, if you're looking at exfoliation, what exfoliation does is exfoliation in a abrasive manner will strip the upper layer or two layers of the skin. Of the of the epidermis, the outermost layer, which then leaves you with less distance for water to travel in order for it to escape. So exfoliating scrubs, while they do have their place in dermatology, in the context of dry skin, probably going to be counterproductive. It's going to make it worse. It's going to make the situation worse because you now are breaking down the skin barrier even further. Yes, it does get rid of the outer dead cells, in a way, giving your skin um, a more healthier look. But in a pathological or a diseased skin, or even a skin that is prone to becoming dry, that certainly is something that I, I would not recommend. In fact, any procedure that actually does that, including, for example, chemical peels, because in a patient who's, who's, who's got a normal skin, one of the, the main risks or consequences of having a chemical peel done or microdermabrasion, or laser for that matter, 
in the immediate term, in the first 24 hours to 48 hours, your main risk for that patient is dehydration of the skin, which is why a lot of the post-procedure creams that people will use after a chemical peel or a, or, or a laser treatment are designed to repair the skin's barrier as quickly as possible because you want to keep that water seal in. Bearing in mind that these cosmetic procedures, they are in a way a controlled insult on the skin. And what happens is that you've got to restore the skin's barrier function in order for the skin not to dehydrate. Because in the dermis, what is happening, there's a healing process that's going on. That dermis dictates and determines what the overlying epidermis eventually looks like. So if there's a healing process going on, the fibroblasts or the cells that are in the dermis need a water environment to be able to move from one place to the other. That is, where, that is the reason why a dry wound, be it a surgical wound or otherwise, a dry wound takes long to heal yes. because the cells can't, they're not, they're not, not in, a mo, in a medium that allows them mobility. They need to bridge the gap, aco- a gap across a wound. If the wound is too dry, it delays wound healing. If the wound is too wet, for example, it will result and predispose the patient to developing infection, which will also delay wound healing. So too much of moisture in a wound is a problem and too little, moist, too little water in a wound is a problem. How do we know? You would know depending on the look of the wound. If the wound appears to be very crusted and dried, you know that you're not, getting, you're not going to be getting anywhere. But that's the reason why it is so important that after a procedure, you want to keep that skin hydrated. And coming back to your original question, and that's the reason why scrubs and exfoliators, loofahs, um, can be counterproductive in a skin that is eczema-prone or is prone to, be, to becoming dry. And uh, I think you also mentioned that with acne, I think uh, in one of our shows that we've done previously, that you should never exfoliate if you have acne. There is a rule for exfoliation in acne, but not all types of acne would benefit from exfoliating exfoliating only. It is the the very early stages of acne, your grade 0 to grade 1, where you have whiteheads and blackheads. There there is a value in exfoliating because what you are doing is by exfoliating, you are actually opening up the tops of those plugged follicles. So you allow the sebum which is stuck behind, which is your whitehead or your blackhead, to escape. And and there is a value in it. If you've got inflammatory acne, uh, which is your grade 3 to grade 4 type of acne, exfoliating doesn't really offer you much of an advantage. Um, If you're looking at... um, when the acne has settled down completely, leaving you with things like pigmentation and scarring, there again, you can go back to exfoliating. But the timing of the exfoliation is important. Not, like I said, not all patients with acne would be a candidate for exfoliating or some sort of resurfacing procedure. You have to choose the patient in terms of the severity of disease, and you also got to make sure that the disease is quiet before you start to do resurfacing. Okay. Cheryl wants to know about um, she wants to know about moisturizing with folliculitis what's folliculitis a folliculitis is a broad term that's used to describe an inflammation of the hair follicle any hair follicle be that in a hair bearing area like the beard or the scalp or the eyebrows or underarms or in a non-hair bearing area you still have got hair follicles just that some of them don't produce hair in a folliculitis you can have it as a result of an infection 
or there are certain types of, inf- of folliculitis that are non-infective. If you look at the commonest types of the infective types, it can be bacteria, it can be fungi, are the, are the common types that will give you folliculitis. Now coming back to the moisturizer, we tend to see a type of folliculitis specifically that occurs on the lower limbs between the, the knee and the ankle as a result of petroleum jelly use. What happens there is that you've got, you must remember that the inside of the hair follicle, although it's within the skin, from a barrier function point of view, it's actually external and outside of the skin. So whatever bacteria you get on the skin are able to get easy access into the hair follicle. Now you apply an occlusive and you've just trapped the bacteria within the follicle. So they end up with these small, fine, pinpoint pustules that develop on the, on the, on the shins. Oh, that sounds painful. And, 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 it, and it can be painful. And um, what, what's worse, it actually causes scarring in some patients with, with, with associated pigmentation. So yes, you can get folliculitis, but predominantly with the occlusive type of, of moisturizers. Okay, so rather look for the humectants. Hum- humectin. Humectin. That's the, the type of moisturizer that's going to take. So one of the ingredients to look out for, you said, is urea. Urea, urea, acetamacrigol are all items that can be used. Yeah. And do you have to get a prescription for no, these? No, no, no. Uh, you can many, just get many them over the commer- counter. Many, many, many of them are commercially available. In fact, you probably walk down an aisle and see more than 20 products with different concentrations of urea um, and various other humectants in them. So they're freely available and and majority of them are actually inexpensive. Well, that's good news, isn't it? And, and, and you don't even need to see the doctor for it. <laughs> no, especially not when you've been on the radio. <laughs> My guest is Dr. Irshad Mohammed Esak. He's a dermatologist. And uh, we're talking about dry skin. We're talking about preparing our bodies for winter. We're going to be talking about heels. Heels. <laughs> because that's a big one for winter, isn't it? I mean, our feet are wrapped up cozy and snug and, uh, you know, we get dressed because it's freezing cold in the morning by lunchtime. You know, we can actually feel the perspiration in our shoes. So we're going to be talking about that. If you've got any questions, any comments, then this is how you get in touch. 34519, that's the text line. Those texts are charged at 1 Rand 50. You can also uh, send us a WhatsApp or Telegram message for free on 061-895-1019. My name's Kathy Kayla, and this is the Diskem Medical Monday. Thank you for joining me. This is Medical Monday, brought to you with compliments of Diskem, pharmacists who care. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Kathy Kayla, and this is the Diskem Medical Monday. Thank you, Diskem. And my guest today is Dr. Ishad Mohammed Esak. He's a dermatologist in private practice, and uh, he's no stranger to Chai FM. He's certainly no stranger to the Diskem Medical Monday. We have spoken about, gosh, we have spoken about skin care in every shape, form, <laughs> and uh, he actually taught me the A, B, C, D, E, F, Gs to of uh, of skin cancer and looking after your skin and it's something that uh, just absolutely brilliant so if you want to get in touch with us 34519 that's the SMS line or 0618951019 we're going to wrap it up in about 10 minutes so you haven't got a long time especially if you want him to answer your question get them through um dr isak is can dry skin be an indicator for a more severe um, illness or condition. Yes, absolutely. Dry skin can be a standalone item where patients 
don't really end up having disease. It's more um, a slight um, deficiency in the skin's barrier function. So it can be as mild as that. And then you have those patients who would have dry skin associated with some sort of other condition. And the commonest one that we tend to see is the atopic eczema. And in atopic eczema, these particular patients have got a fundamental problem in holding on to water in their skins. And as a result of that, that basically drives inflammation of the skin. If you were to take eczemas to the opposite extreme, I'm looking at severe eczemas, there's another group of conditions called the ichthyosis. And the direct Greek translation for ichthyosis is fish scales. So you have these patients who've got these large, in some cases, armor plate-like scales that develop onto the body, similar to, to, a, to, a, to a fish. And um, these particular patients have got tremendous dis, uh, disability in, in holding on to water in the skin. There are types of ichthyosis as well that is associated with certain genodermatosis or genetic problems, um, like extinct re recessive ichthyosis. Um, and you find that these patients have got a constant scaling that occurs. When they undress at the, at the end of the day, it's literally scales all over the bathroom floor. And that is what their daily lives are like. Um, it, and it can, it can occur in, 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 in early childhood in some cases. And Gosh, unfortunately, what a, what a kids, difficult... And kids um, can be, re on, the, on the playground, can be exceptionally mean, <coughs> whereby, whereby they, would, they would tease others um, on the playground. And, and, and these children tend to be they, want to be, they want to be covered all the time, despite what the heat may be like long sleeves, long trousers, uh, only because they don't want people to see what they, what they, what they look like. Can so they outgrow it? Is, is it curable? In the genetic forms, generally not. However, if you're using good quality moisturizers, certain types of ex exfoliants in that particular case, uh, you, to get the scales off, uh, you can give them a fairly normal looking skin, but they have to be on the ball with the, with the, with the daily regime. Um, otherwise, they tend to fall behind and their skin tends, tends to look horrific. And also remember that in a well-moisturized skin, the outer layer of the skin or the, or the corneocytes or the, uh, or the cells tend to sit like very well-aligned roof tiles. It allows water to run off. In a case of ichthyosis or in a case of a dry skin, a dry skin imagine that roof had been hit by a cyclone. And now all of those roof tiles are completely disrupted. So what happens is that you'll find it is easy for bacteria that normally live on the skin, they get a chance to get between those roof tiles and get into the skin. So what should be living normally with you now becomes pathologic and begins to fall, cause a whole host of other diseases along the way. For example, and we discussed this at, at, in, in a previous show, where they tend to develop fungal infections and impetigo, which is a bacterial infection. So not only does the barrier function of the skin become disrupted in terms of water retention, but also barrier function in terms of keeping infections out. All right, lots of uh, messages coming through. Um, okay, Nikki says, does laser treatment really provide permanent hair removal? It's obviously going back to the folliculitis that we were the, talking about, I think. Look, there are, different, there are different laser platforms that work for hair removal some better than others. Um, the long-term aim of laser treatment is actually to retard the hair growth. Um, the hair follicle being what it is, 
has got a constant ability and a drive to regrow a hair. I'm, I'm looking at in a normal in a normal setup. I'm not talking about a patient who's got um, male pattern baldness or a, a pathological condition occurring in the hair follicle. But a normal hair follicle has got a normal drive to keep producing a hair shaft within it. What laser treatments actually do is they actually begin to interfere with the growth point of the hair follicle, which is the hair bulb at the, right at the bottom, where the root of the hair actually is. And with repeated hair, sorry, with repeated laser treatments, that bulb becomes lazier and lazier in its growth cycle. We demotivate them. We demotivate them. <laughs> so what it does is, it, it, I won't use the word permanently reduces hair growth. What it does is it certainly retards the rate at which the hair grows, one. And secondly, it also makes the hair less coarse. So the hair doesn't mature into a terminal hair shaft. Mm-hmm. It's more like baby hair. And you'll find that there are patients who have been having, or clients, let's use the word clients, but not all of them actually have a, have a medical problem. There are clients who have laser treatments who, after having laser treatments done for several years, three, four, five, six years, who may be going to have that area treated once or twice a year, mainly as a maintenance, as a maintenance, uh, to keep the hair gone. But to use the word permanent, I'm I'm a bit uncomfortable with that particular terminology. I'd rather use the word, you have a longer term retardation of hair growth. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't sound very appealing the way that you just described it. I'm just saying. <laughs> Something hashtag things beauticians won't tell you. <laughs> All right. Uh, what causes favus or favus adult ringworm, and what can be done about it? Unsigned. Thank you for your messages. If you want to send through your messages, three four five one nine. That's a text line, or zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. That's uh, either WhatsApp or Telegram. Favus is actually a type of of, um, fungal infection that occurs on the skin, um, predominantly in the hair-bearing areas. There is another type as well as associated, which is called carry-on. And uh, these two types of of fungal infections are quite aggressive. And they are classified differently because of the level of inflammation that they cause. They cause extreme destruction of the surrounding area. You can get swelling. You can get uh, temporary um, hair loss in those those areas where you end up having uh, bald patches that occur as well. And these are extremely painful. And once these fungal infections tend to invade the area or the fungi invade the area, they then leave the door open as well for bacteria to then follow. So you sometimes end up having a secondary superficial bacterial infection over and above the fungal infection. Now in that particular case, um, usually systemic antifungals or oral antifungals would be would be the way to go and treat the bacterial infection with antibiotics as well. So what does it actually look like, this carrion or fungus? Yeah, th- what you have is you have these, this swollen, in some cases can this very spongy, boggy feeling mess that can occur in the area. Um, it can often be mistaken for being an abscess, except that it is not fluctuant. So when you feel it, it's not... Um, uh, it's not soft because there isn't any um, cavity in the center. But the, but the skin feels extremely spongy. 
because of all the inflammation and the flu that's actually come into the area. Is it painful? It, it, it's, it's, it's painful because of the expansion of the nodule. Okay. Right? Um, and you find that uh, it can be red. And in some cases, when, the, when you have a secondary bacterial infection, you can get pustules that develop over the top. Um, and that also tends to invade the next follicle and the next follicle and the next follicle. So you end up with this large mass that just continues to expand and they can be large areas, sometimes in some cases as large as, an, as, a, as a semi-orange. A semi-orange? Uh, oh, like a half, half an orange? Yeah, half, half an orange. orange. Yeah. That's incredible. So how is that treated? Well, you're, 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 first of all, you need to recognize it. Um, and once it's recognized, oral antifungals will be the way to go. Obviously, pain relief and, and you can get a fever as well. So you need to uh, give the patient an antipyretic as well to control the fever. And if there's secondary bacterial infection then you most likely will need to do a pus swab, identify the bacteria, but you usually will start the patient on some sort of uh, empiric antibiotics while you wait for those results. Wow. Rose has got a very interesting question. Thank you, Rose, and thanks for signing your name. She says, uh, what can one do about dry scaly eyelids that cause the eyelashes to fall out? Dry scaly eyelids is an extremely common problem, and the reason being is, that the overall thickness of your entire eyelid is about as thick as the outermost layer on your palm. Okay, so, so you're giving that, that, that thought. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm definitely giving the thought. The, okay. The entire thickness of your eyelid yes. is as thick as only the outer layer of your skin on your palm. The skin on my palm? The, yeah. The it's outer layer. It's, 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 it's as thick as only the outer layer. Okay. Right, so your eyelids are exceptionally thin. Now, therefore, as we've been explaining earlier, they are extremely prone to water loss. Now, what you can do is there are many, again, humectants that are out there and a lot of other barrier creams out there that you can use to apply onto the eyelid in order to seal that water into the, into the eyelid itself. But a lot of patients battle with eyelid eczema, specifically and isolated only to the periorbital or the eye area, where they will, where the, the the eyelid will constantly fissure or crack, and it leads to little cuts in the skin, and they constantly get inflammation in that particular area. The mainstay of treatment or the fundamental way to treat that is to use good quality barrier creams, and or in some cases very mild, with very circumspect use, cortisones to apply in that area, and that also fields, you can go f for certain non-cortisone creams in those areas as well. Antihistamines are also important to prevent patients from constantly rubbing the eyelid because the more you rub the eyelid, the more you're going to abrade the eyelid. Okay. Very, very quickly because I'm watching the time and we do have to get out of here. <laughs> but uh, can we just talk about dry heels? Dry heels in summer, not a problem because one is walking around in sandals. We've got that natural exfoliation happening. We're walking on the sand on the beach perhaps. There's a lot of rain. There's moisture. There's natural moisture in the air. Winter can be an absolute nightmare in terms of heels and cracked heels and rough heels. What do we do? Do we exfoliate? Don't we exfoliate? What do? Give us some advice. I think not everyone has got the time to go for a paraffin wax. Oh, once a week so a lot of home care can be done you must remember that that dry, a, a lot of the, what we see as those fissured cracked dry heels are as a result of 
thickened skin. Mm-hmm. When we walk around, our soles of our feet are subject to many mechanical forces. And one of the ways the skin tries to protect itself is by thickening itself. That's the reason why our palms and soles are thicker than everywhere else. So a lot of what you are seeing actually is thickened skin in as much as you are seeing dried skin. In this particular case, and I'm going to use the word chemical exfoliants is probably going to be the way to go. Because using an abrasive mechanical exfoliant, like a pumice stone, for example, is going to drive the friction on the heel. And after a week or so, that skin is going to thicken again. So you probably would require a, a, a combination of a humectant, for example, urea. And on, on the palms and soles, you may require higher concentrations of the urea. Probably about 10%. In some, some cases, you can use up to 15 20% of urea. But what you also want to do is to chemically remove the, the outer parts of the skin. So items that contain salicylic acid, majority of the heme, heel balms that are available, anywhere between 2% and if you want to be really, really aggressive, you can get... Uh, certain certain items that are commercially available off the shelf with up to 10, 12, 15, 20% salicylic acid is, is available. Um, salicylic? Salicylic acid. Lactic acid also does a great job in exfoliating as well. So you can use lactic acid in in uh, in, in some cases. Um, glycolic acids as well. Uh, Would you be comfortable giving us brand names? Um, so that, otherwise we have to look through all the products for ones that have urea and salicylic acid. Look, um, there are products out there or there are brands that, that stock different uh, moisturizers and you need to, and, they, and their ranges are actually quite large. If you look at, uh, for example, um, the Eucerin range, um, a lot of the exfoliators, uh, a lot of the moisturizers contain lycocalcone, which is uh, an anti-inflammatory, which you would need in an eczema setup. But they also have got many moisturizers that have got various concentrations of urea in them, anywhere from about 5% up to their body creams that have got 10% and, and in some cases uh, beyond that. If you were to look at uh, the Cetaphil range uh, from Galderma, they've got a good quality um, moisturizer as well. You, they have a, a moisturizing cream, which mo- most patients would use in a winter setup. And for those who find that a little bit, and I'm not going to use the word sticky because it isn't, if they find it a bit heavy, you can downgrade yourself from there to a, a moisturizing lotion from the Cetaphil range as well. Bioderma also, they has got a very good uh, range, and specifically you'd be looking for something from the Xeroderm or the Atoderm range. Um, and, and they have got, again, good quality humectant moisturizers that bind to the water and, and, and take, the water, take the water into the skin uh, as well. Um, then you may find um, uh, items like uh, Epimax out there on the market. Um, they have got uh, lotions available. They've got bath oils available that also act as humectants. Their moisturizers come in a lotion. You can move up to a cream if you want something a bit richer. And then they also have got those that contain glycerine and glycerin and, um, and urea in them as well, which would be your Epimax Plus range. So there are many of them out there uh, that you can simply pick up, pick up off the shelf. And it, 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 you'd find a spectrum of products. And maybe if you start off, with one of them, and maybe if you think you need to work your way up or down, depending on the season and the level of uh, of dryness, there certainly are products in that in, in those ranges where you can work yourself up or down.
This has been the Diskem Medical Monday, and uh, thank you so much to my very, very knowledgeable guest, who is always welcome in the studio, Dr. Ishad Mohammed Esak. He's a dermatologist. Go and look him up. He's in private practice. And uh, just some very, very good advice for keeping our skins supple and hydrated as we prepare for winter. Thank you, Diskem, and thank you to you. For, uh, for listening and for chatting to us this morning on the, uh, on the SMS lines. God bless. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Bye.